0: Welcome back to our final episode of our mini-series, Old Covenant Controversies, right here on the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. And just as a little disclaimer for our audience, I will be talking about some very serious topics regarding human sexuality. So, uh, let the listener know. Hopefully we've been able to do these topics some justice in a brief amount of time. We can't say everything that could possibly be said about God and science, God and violence, God and history— Now we're talking about God and sexuality in the Old Covenant time, the Old Testament time. Now, anybody who knows me well knows I'm a pretty big football fan. I remember one year at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl number 40 in Detroit, the Rolling Stones played the halftime show and they played their famous hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And really, it's all about the dissatisfaction that people experience in romantic relationships between men and women. That may be the case And in fact, I remember Mick Jagger joking, we could have sang this song at Super Bowl number one. That's how old the song is. Well, you actually could have sang it way back in the Garden of Eden because dissatisfaction in the marital relationship kind of goes back to the beginning. But it wasn't always the case. We talked in our last episode about St. John Paul the Great, his theology of the body, how it goes back to the beginning. Jesus says, in the beginning, it was not so. In the Gospel of Matthew. And JP2 said, well, what was it like in the beginning? And kind of did this big Bible study on Genesis, wanting to read Genesis through the eyes of Jesus. So we started talking about the theology of the human body, a, a great teaching series by John Paul the Great. And the first thing that he talked about, which we mentioned last time, the first what he calls original experience of man and woman was original solitude. Adam was all alone. The second was original unity. God brings Adam a bride. And then the first family begins. A child is born. Now there are three persons in one family. Really a sign of the Trinity. So if you missed the last episode, check out the podcast. And now we come to the third original experience of men and women. And John Paul II said this is the key to understanding God's plan for us. The key to understanding the theology of of the human body. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now why is this the key? Because the man and his wife experience sexual desire as part of the call to love in the image of God. This is what the Pope called the nuptial meaning of the body. We actually see this in the four parts of the wedding vows in the Catholic Church today. The call to love freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. And this is exactly how Christ loved his bride, the church. So if you've been to a Catholic wedding mass, or if you were married in the Catholic church, you know that these four questions are asked of you. Have you come here freely to give yourselves without reserve to one another? That's called love totally. Do you promise to be faithful unto death? And will you accept children as a gift from God? Will you raise them according to the laws of Christ and his church? The call to love fruitfully. So again, this is how Jesus loved his bride, the church. He says in John's gospel, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. The call to love freely. He says, This is my body, which will be given up for you. The call to love totally. He gives it all. Faithfully, he says, I will be with you always until the very end of the age. And then finally, fruitfully, his love is fruitful. He says that the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, talking about the devil. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He says that in John chapter 10. So we see Jesus exemplifying this love, especially when we think about the cross, when we gaze upon a crucifix. And that's why our crucifixes in Catholic parishes have a corpus on them, a representation of the body of Christ, not because we like blood and gore. We're often asked about this. People say, hey, don't you know that Christ is risen from the dead? Why does your cross then have a body on it? Well, yeah, we know about the resurrection. We were the first to proclaim it. It's because this is the greatest act of love that has ever been seen on the face of the earth. This is what love is. People wonder, what is love? This is love. Love in action. It's a total gift of self. So this call to love freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully... When it comes to human sexuality, anything that you're thinking of doing, and Christopher West talked about this when he taught on Theology of the Body, he said you can use those four questions as a grid. Is this, is this act, a sign of Christ's free, total, faithful, and fruitful love for his church, or is it not? We're going to come back to this. You're listening to The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So back to JP2 and his Theology of the Body. This free, total, faithful and fruitful love. This was the union of the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, and they were truly loving one another. And this is what John Paul II said about love in a prior work that he wrote at the cusp of the so-called sexual revolution in the 1960s. He wrote a book called Love and Responsibility. It's a wonderful book. And he said, to love someone is the opposite of what it means to use someone. That's the key thought from the book. To love is the opposite of what it means to use someone. And so much of what passes for love in this day and age is nothing more than use. JP two said in the Theology of the Body, quote, the fact that they were not ashamed, he's talking about Adam and Eve, the fact that they were not ashamed means that the woman was not an object for the man, nor him for her. And these are gross caricatures, but he wasn't using love to get sex, as it were, nor was she using sex to get love, or no one was using the other. There was only a seeking to be a total gift of self to the beloved. Now, keep in mind that all of this was before sin came into the picture. After the tempter, the Satan, the Nahash, the great dragon, encouraged Adam and Eve to take the bait, disobey God. One of the first things that happened was their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This was the original Fruit of the Loom underwear, folks, but I digress. At any rate, God finds Adam and Eve. They're trying to hide from him. God has some questions for them. And this is what we always do when it comes to sin. Very often we're tempted to run away and hide rather than just to simply ask for forgiveness, but God has some questions for them in the garden. Not that he doesn't know the answers, he's omniscient, but he's giving them the opportunity to fess up, to really make the first confession in human history, to repent. He says, where are you, number one? Number two, who told you that you were naked? They didn't even know. Uh, That's pretty amazing. Have you eaten of the tree? And what is this that you have done? Now, instead of confessing, they started playing the blame game. Blamed God, blamed each other. Adam says, hey, the woman whom you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it. In other words, God, it's really her fault. It's not my fault. That's actually your fault because you set all this up. Well, God would have been well within his rights just to zap them and take them out at that point, but he shows them great mercy even as he gives them better things to wear. He upgrades their attire to animal skins. Now, The reason why they're doing that, by the way, why they're clothing themselves, is to protect themselves from the lustful look of the other. Now that sin was in the world, lust was in the world. It was never a possibility before. And Christopher West said that, really, if you want to know what lust is, lust is sexual desire devoid of the love of God. Sexual desire is a gift from God that he's given to us. It's a good thing, created to be good by God, but it's without the love of God. It seeks to use rather than to be a gift. And so this is very, very um, intriguing. And these animal skins, by the way, also show something else. St. Paul would later talk about this in his letter to the Romans centuries later. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die because of the sin. If it's not gonna be you, there has to be a substitute. So these creatures shed their blood so Adam and Eve could be covered. That's a precursor to all the animal sacrifices of the old covenant time in the temple. And ultimately the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But ultimately all, getting back to sexual sin here, ultimately all sexual sin comes down to this failure to love freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully in the area of human sexuality. So again, we can apply that grid to questions about sex, is this a sign of christ's love or is it not for example is adultery a sign obviously not he is the faithful spouse but it's also a sin against the ten commandments it's not faithful the faithfulness piece is not there what about contraceptive acts no because they close the sexual act to the possibility of being life-giving it's not fruitful now elsewhere john paul the great he wrote about contraception by saying it introduces a lie into the language of love. Why is that? Because the very act of the sexual embrace between man and woman is supposed to be a total gift of self. But if the couple is contracepting, they're holding something back from their spouse, a very precious gift which they have given by God. It's called our fertility. And that's not something to be destroyed. It's a normal part of being a functioning, healthy adult human, the gift of fertility. And so the church says, for serious reasons, and I'm talking about natural family planning, a couple may refrain from relations during the fertile time if they have a serious reason to do so. But if they are going to engage in the sacred act of marriage, it has to be open to the gift of life, the two purposes, the twin purposes of the act of marriage, the two Bs, babies in bonding, as Janet Smith puts it. So we can't separate those two. What about homosexual acts? Are these a sign of Christ's free, total faithful and fruitful love? Oh, clearly not. Uh, there's certainly no fruitfulness and only a man and a woman can form a complete reproductive system. Again, the theology of the body, the very natural law of our bodies display this. It, by the way, on this issue, because it is such a, a touch point, a flashpoint in today's culture, it's good to take some time to look at what the catechism actually has to say about this, because a lot of people are confused about what the church really teaches. Okay, so the church discusses the issue of homosexuality in three paragraphs in the Catechism, paragraph 2357 through 2359. So let's take a look at those real quick. 2357, it says, Homosexuality refers to relations between men or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction towards persons of the same sex. It has taken a great variety of forms throughout the centuries and in different cultures. Its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. Basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents homosexual acts as acts of grave depravity, tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine, effective, and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. So these uh, sacred scripture passages that the catechism references, by the way, would be Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29, Romans 1, verses 24 through 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Paragraph twenty-three, fifty-eight. the number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Next paragraph, 2359, homosexual persons are called to chastity. By the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. So that's where you can find that in the catechism. So the Catholic Church, there's so much that can be said about this. So the Catholic Church makes a great distinction between act and person. I remember attending a talk that was given by Professor Peter Kraft on the theology of marriage. And during the Q&A session, a number of persons were angrily shouting at him, condemning him for not, quote-unquote, accepting their lifestyles. Now, they, these people were practicing an, act, an active homosexual lifestyle. They are quite open about that. One of the things that he said to them, Peter Kraft, was that the Catholic Church is the only organization in the world that will not try to define you by what you do or what you have done, but rather by who you are, what what you're called to be, who you're called to be, a child of God. I think about the famous story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the Scarlet Letter. Hester Prynne is condemned to wear this letter A, the scarlet letter, because she'd committed the sin of adultery. Well, the church says, Don't define yourself by these acts that you're drawn towards. Okay, the catechism makes clear that it's not a sin for people to have tendencies towards homosexuality, but it is a sin to act on them, whether through full-blown lust or whether through actually committing the acts themselves. But the church doesn't define you by your sin. You are not your sin. You are not your tendency. You are a son, a daughter of God, who is called to be a saint by living purity in life. Jesus says, "'Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God.'" That's what we said in the Beatitudes. Obviously, this is a very serious subject, incredibly difficult to cover all of this in a brief period of time. But in closing, I do want to say a word also about contraception. The fact that many Christians and even Catholics have embraced contraception, even though the church has clearly stated it is a mortal sin, it's made it awfully difficult for them to fight against the many counterfeits of true marriage in the culture, to promote marriage and its fruits, but also it's been the Achilles' heel Of the pro-life movement because many contraceptives such as the ubiquitous birth control pill are in fact abortifacients that cause chemically induced abortions at the earliest stage of pregnancy so let's break down the word contraception contra means against inception means conception so it's against conception any means by which one of the natural uh purposes of sexuality the which is procreation, is frustrated. There's so many different methods of contraception. It's not a modern invention, by the way. It's been around for as long as people have been doing it, as it were. Only the technology has changed. Uh, Not long ago, I saw a museum exhibit that was about the history of contraception. The ancient Egyptians had all these methods, just the technology wasn't very good. But in the book of the Bible, known as the book of Genesis, the first book, in chapter 38, there's a man named onan who committed a contraceptive act in fact when catholics used to confess this they used to confess the sin of onanism it was actually named after him now a lot of people say that he was punished by death by god not because of his contraceptive act but because of the fact that he refused to raise up children for his brother that actually won't work the penalty for that in ancient israel was simply public humiliation in his book, The Bible and Birth Control, Charles Provan, who is a Protestant, prevents a compelling case for the reason why certain sexual sins in the Old Covenant were considered worthy of the death penalty. They all render the sexual act sterile. Uh, these include homosexual acts, for example, Leviticus 2013, bestiality, Leviticus 2015 and 2016, also the sin of onanism, essentially the withdrawal method in Genesis 38, and people say, well, "What about in the New Covenant? Is it possible that in the New Testament God relaxed His standards somewhat with regard to contraception or any other sexual sin? And the answer is a resounding no. In the New Testament, we actually find three references condemning something called sorcery. Let me talk about contraception specifically for a second here. In Galatians uh, 5:19 to 26, Revelation chapter nine, verse 21, Revelation 21, verse eight, mentions sorcery. When we hear that, we think about something like witchcraft or something along those lines. It's actually a bad translation. Don't forget the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word that is used is the word pharmakia. What does that sound like to you? Drugs, pharmaceuticals, and that's for good reason. In fact, that's where these modern words come from, pharmakia. But in the first century, when the New Testament documents were written, this word had a specific meaning. The pharmakia were those who had concoct potions, That would either render a person sterile or if a woman was pregnant would chemically induce an abortion. So again this stuff has been around from the beginning. Now, People ask when will the Catholic Church get with the times on all this stuff? Well something a lot of people don't realize that up until the year 1930 all Christian bodies agreed that contraception was always a serious moral evil. In the year 1930, The Anglican Church, at their Lambeth Conference, allowed contraception in certain cases for married couples. It's interesting that the Anglicans, who kind of got their start by undermining the sacrament of marriage with King Henry VIII, breaking away from the church because the Catholic Church would not uh, grant him an annulment of his valid marriage, he wanted to marry his mistress Anne Boleyn, Henry's response was to start his own church, make himself the head of that church so he could indulge himself. In 1930, that same body further moves to undermine marriage by allowing contraception. Within just a few years, every major Protestant community follows suit. Today, only the Catholic Church stands alone saying that this is wrong. The Catholic Church has always been steadfast on teaching morality. As Peter Craft has noted, people want to say that the Catholic Church is trying to impose its authority on my life all the time. Well, the Church claims to have far less authority than these other groups. They think they have the authority to change the teachings of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. But the Catholic Church will never imbibe the potions of the age. When it comes to sexual morality, you have to make a choice. Either the whole world has gone crazy, has gone offline, or the Catholic Church has gone offline, is crazy. Some ask, when will the Catholic Church get with the times? Well, Peter Craft once said, the Catholic Church doesn't read the times. She reads the eternities. She's only concerned with saving your eternal soul and mine. For Old Covenant Controversies on the Faith Explained, I'm your host, Kale Clark. Alright, as we open the Faith Explained Q&A session, I want to remind you that you can send me your questions, and I'll try to answer them on the show. You can email me at faith at relevantradio.com, faith at relevantradio.com, or follow me on Twitter and get your message to me there, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Well, in our series Old Covenant Controversies and in other programs, we've talked about the biblical theological case against contraception. And that might be enough to convince Christian believers, but what about the person who says, I don't care about what the Bible says. I don't care about what God says or what the church says. I don't believe in God. I'm not Catholic. Well, here's where we have to realize that the God of the Bible and of the church is also the God of nature. He created all things. There is something called the natural law. And very often when I talk about this uh, to pre-marriage classes and parishes, a lot of couples who are there preparing for marriage, they're not exactly practicing the Catholic faith. They're kind of jumping through a hoop. They want to get married in the church for whatever reason. I'm glad that they're there, but but here's how I talk to them about this. I say to the guys, hey guys, what would you do if someone was trying to harm your fiancé, your beloved? What would you do if you saw someone trying to say, you know, mug her in a dark alley? Well, you'd fight tooth and nail, hopefully to keep her from physical harm, of course. Any guy worth worth his salt would. And then I ask him, okay, well, if that's the case, then why do you want your fiancé putting something in her body that could literally kill her. And then I talked to them about the health risks of the most common form of contraception, the birth control pill. Now here's some of the side effects. Breast cancer, that's a possibility. Cervical cancer. Strokes. Pulmonary embolism, heart attacks. Depression. Weight gain. I'm sure every woman is looking for a magic pill that will make her depressed and gain weight, right? Blood clots, loss of libido, vaginitis, chemical diabetes, sterility, death. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating here, these are all mentioned in the disclaimers in advertisements that you see on television. They they say them really, really quick at the end of commercials for birth control pills and also in the medical insert little piece of paper that comes in the package. and No one ever reads it, but it is all there. When I mention death, you might think that that is a real exaggeration, but think again. You know, when the pill was first being developed in the 1960s, it's a well-known fact that clinical trials were performed on women in South America, third world countries. And these women went along with these tests, but they were poor, very often uneducated in many cases. They were taken advantage of. Many of these women died from using early editions of the pill. As drug companies sought the right balance of synthetic artificial hormones, many women paid the ultimate price. And they were essentially used as guinea pigs to try to save the lives of North American women. it's how tragic, how sinful, but even today, although rare, death can still occur. Let me tell you the true story of a woman named Lena. She was engaged to be married, and as many women do, she went on the pill in preparation for this and a lot of women it's not the it's not a question of will you use contraception but what kind of contraception will you use but she began to experience some very serious side effects migraine headaches dizzy spells visual problems complained to her doctor but he didn't take her seriously three weeks before her wedding she had a stroke that left her completely paralyzed and able to communicate only with her eyes. Now, she initiated a lawsuit against her doctor, but all the money in the world will not restore her to health. Here's the kicker from a medical point of view. The final nail in the coffin, quite literally from a medical perspective, is this. The pill, along with many other forms of contraception, is an abortifacient. It doesn't prevent conception from occurring. We know that human life begins at conception, but what the pill does... Is alter the woman's body chemistry using synthetic hormones to trick her into thinking that she is already pregnant changes the lining of the womb the uterus so that implantation can't occur the fertilized ovum the new full human person cannot implant and grow in his or her mother's womb and the baby's essentially flushed out of the mother's body a chemically induced abortion at the earliest stage of pregnancy so Many women who are on the pill don't know about this. They're horrified about it when they discover it. They say, all I wanted was not to get pregnant. I didn't want to kill my own children at the earliest stage. We'll never know how many deaths happen every year because of this. Some estimates range as high as 250 million people every year around the world. And we'll never know how many future Husbands, fathers, mothers, priests, nuns, doctors, teachers, scientists, maybe even the person who would have cured cancer were lost to us because they died at the earliest stage of their lives. Now, when I'm talking to these engaged couples, very often I'll see one gal kick her kick her fiance under the table or maybe give him a little shot in the arm as if to say, hey, maybe we should listen to this. And some people say, Well, how come my doctor hasn't told me this? Well, Again, nobody bothers to read the medical insert, and it's a rare physician that will be frank with a patient about this. Unfortunately, sometimes money is at the root of it. Doctors do make a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies, and some of them think there's no moral problem with it either. I do know one doctor who is a believing Catholic who does not prescribe contraceptives. His patients are shocked when they ask him for the pill, and he says no. And they'll ask why. He'll say, well, do you want the moral the moral reasons or do you want the health reasons or do you want both? Take your pick. So do no harm. That's the Hippocratic Oath, right? It's a hypocritical oath to some. You know, take a pill. When do you take a pill? When you're sick. Well, fertility is not a disease. It's something in, in a healthy adult. You don't want to kill something in you that is good. So that's kind of a, a natural law, maybe medical perspective on why contraception isn't a good idea even from natural reasoning. I'm Cale Clark for The Faith Explained. I'll see you in the next episode. God bless you.